I wanted us to look at the first of our songs of Christmas. You may or may not know this, but Isaiah is full of uh, what theologians have called servant songs. The servant songs, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. You find those servant songs in Isaiah 42. You find them in Isaiah 49, you find them in Isaiah 50, and you find them in Isaiah 52 and 53. Those are often called the four servant songs of Yahweh. Uh, But there are other songs. Isaiah chapter 9 is one that you know well. The virgin shall conceive, Isaiah 7, 14, and unto us, Isaiah 9, a child is born, a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And and on the heels of that is this song. And so we're looking this morning at Isaiah 11, and I'd like for us to look at verses 1 through 10. I know that I've only put the first five in your bulletin, but let's look together at Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Isaiah has just prophesied a forthcoming judgment in chapter 10, and this is, in one real sense, the first word of comfort in this book, following those prophecies of judgment that's coming on the wicked nation for the rebellion against Yahweh. And here now, in this word of comfort, Isaiah says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of God endures forever. Well, you might think that I would have titled this sermon Christmas at the Petting Zoo. Um, There are metaphors, animal metaphors, and it is sometimes confusing. Let me say this at the outset, children. I don't want you to put your hand in a serpent's den or hole or pick up a venomous snake. Um, Isaiah is drawing off of imagery 
that, that ought to be familiar because we understand something about the created order and we understand something about the overturning of that order in the fall, that things are not what they should be, that things are not what they were at creation and things, Isaiah will say here, are not what they always will be. Um, perhaps this year more than other years I have been impressed with how fallen and wicked and wearying and tiresome and hostile this world is. Um, I, I almost can't scroll a social media feed for more than five minutes without my spirit being provoked even by the anger of Christians to one another. It's, it's depressing. It's depressing. Um, it's meant to be depressing. We are meant to feel something of how wrong, terribly wrong, this world is. Um, what's happening all over the world, um, oftentimes veiled from our sight, and yet happening everywhere, is terribly wrong. Uh, the world is not what it was supposed to be. And, and... God cares tremendously about that. The Lord cares tremendously about that. In fact, here in this first word of consolation, the Lord is going to have his people, even as he has just warned them of the judgment, I believe, of the Assyrians that was going to happen very soon, and and the raising of Jerusalem, the, the affliction and the judgment that he's going to send on his people, on, on the tail of that uh, promise that God is sending judgment, God is giving consolation, and not just consolation for the moment, not just a sort of a band-aid for the people of God at that time in 701 BC, but a consolation for all of human history. Um, here in this first uh, prelude to the servant songs, uh, we are meant to understand that we are standing on messianic ground. This is messianic ground. Isaiah understands that. He understood it when back in chapter 9 he said that the child would be born, who would be Prince of Peace. He understood it back in chapter 7 when he said the virgin would conceive and we would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Here in chapter 11, he is surveying in a very real sense the entire scope of the Messiah from his incarnation to the consummation. It's almost unparalleled. You could say in a very real sense that everything Isaiah gives you, especially up through the later chapters of chapter 40 through 66, comfort, comfort my people to the new heavens and the new earth is all bound up in this uh, prelude to the servant songs. And that's magnificent. It's magnificent what the Lord is giving his people here. He's telling us that, that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to have the spirit put upon him. This is what he's going to be like, and he's going to do something so marvelous that it can only be understood in light of the undoing of the fall and the curse and the destruction of the blessings in Eden in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, having told you that, I do 
want you to understand that this would be shocking if you heard this message in Isaiah's day. The Lord has just said there's going to be destruction. The kingdom is going to be brought to stubble, almost if you could envision a burnt-over forest with nothing left. It's going to be completely leveled by the Assyrian attack, by God using them as a rod of judgment against his people. And, and that is such a severe word. You know, when we turn on the news, um, many of us, I, I assume you have this thought, we think, how long? How long until all of this comes to nothing? Nations rise, nations fall all the time. The handwriting's on the wall for nations, and then it comes. And there's often fear and anxiety. What will it be like? The Lord has said to Israel, the handwriting is on the wall. It is coming, and it's going to be leveled to the ground. Notice back at the last two verses in the poem at the beginning of chapter 10. Notice verses 18 and 19, the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. It will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. That's, that's the last word he's given Israel. But now when we come into this, this, new, this new movement in, in the song of the Lord, it is a song of comfort and restoration and redemption and renewal and regeneration. I want us, as we look at this together, and I've already noted that here in this passage, we're going to have Isaiah really giving us that messianic promise from his incarnation to his consummation, the big sweeping scope, all that he is, all that he's going to do and accomplish in these 10 verses. And I want us to consider three things. First, the identity of the coming Redeemer. Secondly, the offices and work of the coming Redeemer. And then third, the fruit or the reward of the coming Redeemer, the identity, the work, and the reward of the coming Redeemer. We'll notice as Isaiah transitions, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no trigger to help us know things are turning. It's, it's as if it, there's a sudden change, and now the Lord's tone has changed, and, and the content has changed, and no longer is there a promise of judgment and destruction. Now, notice this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, um, if you have spent any time in the prophets, you know that oftentimes Christ is denominated the branch, the branch of David. Jeremiah will twice speak about the branch of David, what he's going to do, the fruit of his work, the fruit of his ministry. This is going to be one of David's descendants. Though God is going to send judgment, he is not going to send absolute judgment on his people because the Lord will remember his covenant promises. Because the Lord had made a covenant with David that he would never lack a son who would sit on the throne forever. That God would establish his kingdom through one of David's sons forever. And that one, that promised messianic king, 
is denominated here the, the branch. He is the one that comes from. He branches out. We read this morning about that genealogy of Jesus. Why that's so important. Why does the New Testament have to lead off with another genealogy? Because it's showing where all the genealogies moved and how God intricately was laying the groundwork in the Old Testament, that he now had brought that to fulfillment, that the son of David would be the one that came through that kingly line from from David down to Solomon, all the way down to Joseph, his adopted father. And he would be the rightful heir of the throne, and the kingdom would come through him. But notice that that in, in giving the identity of this messianic king, Isaiah first says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Oh, this is, this is wonderful. He doesn't say from David. He says from David's father. Now, why, why does Isaiah say that he would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse? Well, because um, he would want us to know that his work is, is unsearchable, that he uses unlikely lineage. Remember, Jesse was no king. Before David was anointed and established and called by God to be the king, he came from a lowly family, an unexpected line. There was no such thing as a royal uh, uh, pedigree for David. And he was the least of that line of Jesse. Listen to this. John Calvin says, He does not call him David, but Jesse, because the rank of that family had sunk so low. Judah, where the kingship, it had sunk so low that it appeared not to be a royal family. He said, by going back to Jesse, he was denoting that he would bring his king, as it were, from a mere and mean peasant. This is amazing. Such was the family of Jesse. When David was unexpectedly called to the government of the kingdom, so then, having sustained this calamity and lost its ancient renown, it is denominated by the prophet the family of Jesse. You see, he didn't say he would come from David first and foremost. He would go back to show that his work was going to be from humble beginnings. Remember, this is the one that Isaiah will say in chapter 53. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing attractive about the Lord Jesus. He grew up the son of a carpenter so that what people saw when they saw him was a, a poor peasant son. He grew up in Nazareth, a town of which people in Israel said, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. He didn't come from a distinguished family stock. He didn't come from educated and wealthy pedigree. He came from a low peasant family. There was nothing about him that we should desire him. That is who the Lord Jesus is in his descent. And yet, he is said to be the root. The root. Notice this, a branch from his roots. Um, he is both 
the root and the branch of Jesse. Uh, The prophets are oftentimes speaking about the Messiah being the root of David, the root of Jesse. What does that mean? He would not come from him. He would be the one who had rooted that family. He is God, and he is man. You know, Jesus picks up on this to some degree in Matthew 22 when he's debating with the Pharisees, and um, he says to them, I have one more question for you, and they say, what is it? And he said, whose son is the Christ? And they said, David's. And he says, then how did David in the spirit call him Lord? And he, he quotes Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus says, how can he be David's son if he's David's Lord? How can he be David's Lord if he's David's son? Because he is God and man. That's what Isaiah is saying. The identity of the Messiah is that he will be fully God and he will be fully man. This is the mystery of mysteries. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is the wonder of how God brings comfort out of desolation. This is the wonder of how God will bring redemption to a people that deserve judgment. He will be the root of Jesse, and he will be the branch. Um, the, the illustration here in verse 1 If you could envision a burnt-over forest and trees that have nothing remaining, and yet in the middle of that burnt-over forest, there's one new little shoot. And that's, that's what he's saying. That's going to be the Messiah, that one little shoot. And he's going to spring up, and people won't understand what's happening. Just one tiny little new shoot coming out of what has been destroyed. And that's what God does when he sends Christ into the world. He is, he is, he is the one that grows up before him as a, a, a plant out of dry ground, Isaiah will say in chapter 53. Unexpectedly, unlikely, humble beginnings. That's his identity. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards says, The branch of righteousness was afterwards to spring up, And he was to be the everlasting king of his church. This is why he's called as the everlasting king a branch from the stem of Jesse and a branch out of his roots. Listen to this. Jeremiah says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Jeremiah again in chapter 33, 15 says, Behold, the day is come, says the Lord, that I will cause to raise up unto David a righteous branch, a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. And listen to this, the Apostle John, he summarizes this for us in apostolic inerrancy. And in Revelation 22, 16, he calls Jesus the root and the offspring of David. That's who our Savior is. That's where the comfort's rooted, who he is. There's no comfort apart from that. There's no messianic hope. All the horrible things that rack your mind, that keep you in paralysis and fear and terror, all of the grief that you feel as you look at this fallen world and know things are not what they are supposed to be, all of that will be remedied by the identity of the one who is the root of Jesse and the branch of Jesse and David. That's amazing. All the hopes, 
of all the world are bound up in him. I want us to secondly consider his work. Notice that Isaiah rushes on there in verses 2 through 5, and he tells us something about uh, the character of this one, what, what he's going to be like, and what he's going to be like for what he's going to do. Notice verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, Isaiah gives us here seven characteristics, seven different descriptions of the work of the Holy Spirit on Christ. But the first is the general one. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He, he shall abide on him. And it's impossible for our minds not to go to all of those all of those allusions in the Gospels when Mary is told that she's going to conceive and have a son. She says, how can this be? I've never known a man. And, and the angel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you the way he did the waters at creation, the unformed darkness, and the Spirit hovered over the waters and he brought about creation. The Lord says that that Spirit will come on the Virgin Mary and he will hover over her and, and bring about a new creation by knitting together in her womb a human nature for the eternal Son of God. That's, that's amazing. There is no Christ apart from the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary. He needed the third person of the Godhead in his own incarnation. And then we would be remiss if our minds didn't go immediately to his baptism at the beginning of his ministry, inaugurating him as the prophet, priest, and king in his messianic work. And, and he's there in the waters, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Um, he was anointed at his baptism by the Holy Spirit, the way David was anointed king by Samuel, and the Spirit came down on David to mark him out for that work. Christ was anointed. God the Father, as it were, poured the Spirit out on him. He descended upon him, and from that moment on, Jesus was marked by the power and the presence of the Spirit every second of his life. When the Pharisees and the scribes argued with him, about his miracles, Jesus said, if I, Matthew 12, if I, by the Spirit, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? You see, he pointed away from himself. He said, it's the Spirit in me, enabling me to do this. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us that by the Spirit, Christ offered himself without spot to God. The Holy Spirit was at the cross. He was there sustaining Jesus in unblemished holiness at the cross. Why is that so important to you and me? Because he would be the last Adam who would come to do what our first father horribly failed at. All of everything wrong in this world laid at the feet of Adam. Everything wrong with this world laid then at the feet of the second Adam. And he would, as fully man and fully God, in the power of the Spirit, do as the last Adam what he alone could do. And listen carefully, that's good news for us because he pours out the same Spirit on every single person who truly believes in him. 
and the same Christ upon whom the Spirit rested is the Christ that then by the Spirit is formed in believers. Now listen, he's going to be marked in specific by a number of things. Uh, Notice there in verse 2, he's going to have... He's going to have these gifts that are going to be a benefit to his people, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. I need wisdom. You need wisdom. I need understanding. You need understanding. He has the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He's going to be marked by the spirit of counsel and might. I need counsel. We need his power operative in us. He's going to have the spirit of counsel and of might. He's going to have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He is in himself going to embody the fullness of divine revelation, everything that we need, fully embodied in the Lord Jesus by the Spirit dwelling in him and freely given to us. Notice in verses 3 and then again in 5 that we're going to be told that he's going to be one that lives as the acceptable head of the new humanity before the Lord. Notice this, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in the garden, when Christ cried out with prayers and tears, he was heard because of his godly fear, because of his reverence for the Lord. I mean, there's only been one person who never tried to live for the acceptance and respect of other human beings, and that's the Lord Jesus, always concerned with bringing glory and reverence to his Father. And then notice his royal office. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. He's not going to be one given to partiality. He's not going to be one who takes bribes, and and he's not going to be like the evil kings in Israel. He's he's going not to judge by what his eyes sees. He's not going to decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. With equity, the meek of the earth. And then Isaiah sees something beyond what Christ did in his first coming. He sees something he's going to do when he comes again. You have to, listen, I've told you that analogy. When you see a mountain range from afar, it looks like they're all together. When you get closer, you see many, many miles separating those ranges. Isaiah is seeing the whole scope of the coming of Christ, and and he sees that he's going to destroy his enemies. He didn't do that in his first coming. He's going to do that when he comes again. You know, he's going to execute judgment when he comes again. He's going to come apart from sin for salvation for those who are trusting in him. He's going to come for judgment for the wicked, perishing world. Those are the many parts of the work of the coming Redeemer. I want us to lastly notice the fruit of the coming Redeemer. Um, I was talking to someone this morning about this, and every child asks the question, are there going to be animals in heaven? There are going to be animals in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I have no doubt about that. Um, 
God is not going to destroy this world into oblivion and then make something altogether new. Um, that's, somebody's called that Death Star eschatology. He's not going to just obliterate this and then he's going to renovate. He's going to destroy the elements with fervent heat. He's going to destroy and banish the wicked. And then he's going to renew the cosmos. He's going to give it a new birth, a regeneration. This is the language. Listen carefully. The idea undergirding everything that Isaiah is saying in these latter verses is God is going to regenerate through the root and the branch of Jesse. He's going to regenerate the cosmos. He's going to change natures. Where do we see that? Notice this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, I I am not, I did very poor in biology. I I know nothing about zoology. I used to love taking my kids to zoos when they were little, but I do know this much. Wolves have a nature that devours. It is proper to their nature to destroy. When Jesus wants to warn us about false teachers, he calls them wolves. When Jesus wants to tell believers about the dangers they're going to face in this world until he comes again, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That is, that is part and parcel of the nature of a wolf to destroy. And yet here, natures are going to be changed. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. There's harmony. There's unity. There's peace. There's constancy to what he's going to do. This is not just the prediction of a partial thing. This is, this is metaphorical language describing the whole. This is what he's going to do. I said to my wife this morning, you know, in the midst of all the trials and the hardships and the difficulties of life and how easily we're weighed down under them, our hope as believers is that we have the sure and certain guarantee that one day there's going to be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more disharmony, no more disruption. There's only going to be peace. There's only going to be harmony. And how is that going to happen? Because this descendant of David is going to change natures. He's going to change the natures of his people. I think this is language where he's promising the new birth. What's he going to do? He's going to take people who are in and of themselves hostile. That's what people are by nature, hostile. I will argue with you lovingly and gently. It was supposed to be funny, but it didn't come across that way. People are hostile. They are hostile by nature. He will change the natures of his people. Where there is hatred, there will be gentleness. Where there is pride, there will be humility. Where there is love of self, there will be love of others. This is the New Testament witness to what he is going to do. The works of the flesh, envy, strife, hostility, all forms of wickedness, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. He's going to change his people. He's going to renew his people. He's going to turn us into new creatures. And he's going to change the cosmos. Notice this. 
He's going to change the way in which everything works. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's consummation language. There's, there's a day coming when the worship of God is going to be so comprehensive and so perfect. The harmony of God's people is going to be so full and complete and abiding that the knowledge of the Lord will be as the waters. Notice it doesn't say waters covering the earth. It says waters covering the sea. It's going to be comprehensive. It says the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, Isaiah is going to pick up on this. If you want to know more about this, you go to the end of the book. And Isaiah is going to tell us all about the new heavens and the new earth. All about what we wait for. And listen, that needs to be our hope. The only way we get through this life is if that's our hope. The despair, the hardships, the trials, they would destroy us if we didn't have that hope. We would turn in on ourselves and they would destroy us. And God holds this magnificent hope out. And here's the marvelous thing. I'm going to end with this. He doesn't tell us in these 10 verses how this is going to happen to the full, but he tells us in that final servant song in Isaiah 53. The one who is the root and the branch of Jesse is going to become the suffering servant. He's going to be wounded for your transgressions. He's going to be bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement that brings you peace is going to be upon him, and by his stripes you are going to be healed. He's going to be oppressed and afflicted. He's going to be taken from prison to judgment. Who can declare his generation? He is going to be cut off from the land of the living, stricken and smitten for the sins of God's people. But in doing that, he's going to become the savior of the nations. Notice verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. As we enter into yet another um, season of focused joy over the wonder of the incarnation, I want us to really step back and see the whole scope of who this incarnate branch of Jesse is going to be, what he's going to do how we're going to benefit from that. Um, you know, there is, there's nothing else. Can I say this this morning? If this doesn't energize us and animate us in the Christian life, nothing else will. Nothing. This is it. Um, Isaiah wants you to know this is the thing. Um, and here's the glorious good news. God has already fulfilled all this in Christ. He's already come. He's already been cut off. He's already suffered for your sins. He's already accomplished redemption. He's already secured the new heavens and the new earth. It's all done. And all we are called to do is trust in him, to trust our souls to him, to call on him, to worship him, 
to live for him and to enter into the joy of the Lord and into the full experience of that in the consummation. I read this week, I don't cry a lot. I I almost wept reading this, the account of a man who lost his wife very young. And the joy that he had knowing she had entered into the presence of Christ, it was, it was, it was beyond anything I had read. It was beyond anything I had read. And I thought, you know, there's no way that anyone can do that unless they know the one who is himself the root and the branch of David. Unless they know the Lord Jesus, uh, we will buckle under every trial, every difficult, every pressure. But if we know him, all of this is guaranteed. It's all secured. If you're not trusting in him this morning, I would urge you to put your trust in him. He's the son of Jesse. He's the son of David. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the root and the branch of David. He has all power, all authority, all dominion, all rule. And one day he is going to show off what he's already accomplished on the cross by transforming this wicked and fallen world into something we can't even imagine in glory and beauty and peace and harmony. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would truly astonish us with what you have given us by anticipation so long ago in the prophecy of Isaiah. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us such clear messianic prophecies. We thank you that you have fulfilled those by sending your Son in the fullness of time. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the root of Jesse, the branch of David, that you are the exalted king upon whom the Spirit rested and by whose Spirit you provided redemption for us. We pray that you would give us the same Spirit this morning, that you would pour him out on us and that you would make us a people that truly live in the hope of that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We thank you that you have secured that hope for us. Would you give us that hope anew this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's